rhombus, right? And we utilize that. We think about fundal massage, the top of the uterus, the bottom of the uterus is the, the cervix. And past the cervix, the, the very distal end of the cervix and into the, is the vagina is the uh, birth canal, right? Uh, where the baby's going to be born. The fallopian tubes come off of the uh, uh, north end of the uterus. They out towards the ovaries, which is where the egg is produced and, and shot off. Fembrae of the uh, fallopian tube kind of wrap the egg, hopefully. And conception, fertilization of the egg generally happens in the fallopian tube, right? Um, let's see here. Mensis, we've talked about that, the 28-day cycle where the body is preparing for implantation of a fertilized uh, egg. When that happens, um, we worry about people who might end up with ectopic pregnancy, people who have what specifically? Endometriosis. Yeah, endometriosis, right? That's where that endometrial tissue, um, the stuff that is lining the uterus, preparing for implantation, grows outside of the uterus. Most of the time it's up into the fallopian tube. Sometimes it can move south out of the cervix. Um, occasionally it gets further out of those fallopian tubes even further. Those are increased at risk of ectopic pregnancy. Uh, the uh, perineum, that's the, uh, the area where everything is, uh, the labia, the area between the vagina and the rectum, all of that area. Uh, fetus we know is growing baby placenta. What is the placenta? The sac that the baby lives in. Okay. Nope. Uh, Not the, the sac that the baby lives in. What's that, Shelby? The baby's lifeline. Yeah. How we get strong and healthy. Okay. So both of those are kind of right. Um, when I think of lifeline, I think of a cord or a cable or a my when I plug it in, the lifeline is the cord, right? The placenta is in the lifeline, right? It's the connection between the mother and the baby, the, the initial, between the uterus and the umbilical, right? Um, you guys remember the old Star Trek series? Anybody watch the old Star Trek series? Yeah. Okay, so for everybody except for really uncool Tristan, remember the one where the thing things dropped off the ceiling and landed on their backs yeah i always think of those things they look like placentas <laughs> yeah they absolutely did but the idea is the placenta is an organ it disattaches when it's done but it usually mounts up on the higher or the side of the um, uterus and that becomes the connection between right there's that placental barrier where some stuff comes across some stuff doesn't um and then that moves out into the umbilical now, the umbilical cord has seven arteries and nine veins, right? No. Uh, no. Two veins and one artery, right? Two arteries. There are two arteries, one vein. One vein, right? Um, remember, it kind of looks like a sleepy O face when it spasms. When you cut it, those arteries spasm shut, and the vein will stay open. So that way we can actually use it to cannulate um, and manage a, a baby's uh, IV catheterization. But yeah, two arteries, one vein. It's wrapped up uh, all in there in Wharton's jelly, right? It kind of cushions it and keeps it all good. 
Um, the umbilical cord is really definitely the lifeline. It is responsible for transporting nutrients and oxygen to the baby to move waste product. It moves out through there as well. The mom manages that. Um, so that's good. What kind of cord problems do we have? Nuchal cord. Nuchal cord is the first one. We start with that. When do we check for a nuchal cord? Once the baby's delivered. After Once the whole baby's delivered. Just the head. Just the head. Okay. So just the tip. That sounded wrong. Just the head pops out, and then we're gonna want to check for that nuchal cord, right? We're gonna reach your fingers down. Just feel around the neck. If it's there, what are our options, Maya? Um, you can unwrap it, or if you can, or okay. you can cut it. All right. So unwrapping. Remember, we can slide it up over the head if it's loose. Most of the time, there's enough room. If you can't slide it over the head and it doesn't appear to be tight, you just kind of slide it off to the side and let the shoulders deliver through it. Most of the time, that will take care of it, right? Um, if not, then what we're going to do is we can cut it. What are we worried about if we cut it, um, Nick? Um, I mean, the baby's neck is right there, so you don't want to cut the baby's neck. That is true. Baby's and not you want right to, there. I highly recommend not cutting it. You also want to make sure that you clamp um, both sides so that you don't uh, like lose other, other blood. Okay. I agree with that. And one more thing that I'm at least slightly worried about. Um, the bleeding. Make sure there's no bleeding or blood in between the <laughs> Okay. How about this? Once we cut that cord... What happens to the supply of oxygen and everything else? It stops. It stops. So we want to get that baby to deliver the rest of the way pretty quickly, right? So I'm going to make sure that I'm maybe a little more aggressive about helping deliver that child, right? <laughs> so a couple of things <coughs> excuse me, to, to think about there. So, but if it is tightly wrapped around the neck, you're going to clamp it, clamp it, and cut it. You should be very, very careful about that cut, though, because you're right. It is right there next to arteries and other other important things. Don't cut the baby. It's really poor form. If this is happening, it's delivering in the back of a moving ambulance, and, you know, that's definitely not the goal. We want to think about when we're going to stay at home and deliver versus when we're going to transport to the hospital. But every once in a while, you think, you know what, we got time. And you get on the way to the hospital, and all of a sudden you're like, we don't have time. Um, and it gets to be a little rough. So if that's the case, and you're going to be clamping and cutting a nuchal cord, you should pull the ambulance over to the side of the road and stop where you make that cut. Okay? Can you say use your trauma shears instead of a scalpel or something? I would definitely use my trauma shears instead of a scalpel if possible. But again, that depends on what the situation is. Remember that I showed you that one picture of the nuchal cord that was really, really tightly wrapped. Right. You may or may not be able to get your trauma shears underneath of there. But I would certainly try to do my best to make sure I avoid cutting that kid. All right. So, so if that's too tight, Greg, can you like have the baby come up more and try to cut the cord further down and then unwrap it? So the problem with nuchal cord is that when you start pulling and if you try to deliver that baby further, you may be ripping the placenta off of the uterine wall. Uh -huh. It would be an even bigger problem because then you end up with hemorrhage, 
right? And you still lose the nutrients or the, or the oxygen. So you got to be really careful about that. Good. And again, I've delivered an awful lot of, well, I have not delivered an awful lot of babies. That sounds, that sounds wrong because that sounds like I've delivered hundreds. I've delivered a little over a dozen of them. Even. Um, I've never had a new well, I, I take that back. I've had a couple of nuchal cords. I've never had a tight nuchal cord that needed to be clamped and cut. So I've had a couple of cords. But they just, they just, they're slippery. They slide everywhere. They're out of the way. Okay, so that's one kind of cord emergency. What's another cord emergency? Um, Jess? You're muted. I like that you're talking quietly, though. Still muted. Nice try. <laughs> we'll just watch you struggle for one more try, and then I'm going to ask Alex if... <laughs> Your frustration continues. Alex, what is Jess trying to tell us? Or a mute emergency other than a noogle cord. Water broke. 
in the middle of King Supers, and she was just cracking up for some reason. But there you go. Um, what is something that we're worried about with um, amniotic fluid, Chris? Not Chris? David? Hold on, Hermione. I know you got the answer. Uh, the baby poops in it? If the baby poops in it, you're right. Now, let's be a little more scientific about it. What's it called? I can't remember. Okay, which is why you're lucky you still have a few days to study for this test. It is meconium staining. Okay? Now, I'm going to throw this out there just to kind of start off with. There are people who don't pass this test. They get lulled into a false sense of security with the trauma test. So please make sure that you're keeping your head in a book. The other thing is, is that remember, and I, I'm sure none of you would use your any source of reference for your tests. When it comes to National Registry, you're not going to have a source of reference for your test other than your brain. So that's one of the reasons we are way against um, you know, the online version of testing. Because if it's not in your head when you go to do national registry, that's that's going to be a problem. You'll be like, ah, I got all of this in, in national registry and you don't move forward. So please make sure you're getting it all in there. And you're right, meconium staining is where the baby poops inside. If we have meconium staining, what is something that we might need to consider doing differently um, as we deliver? Matt? You're on mute. Megan, help him out since he's on mute. Anybody who can talk? Got a suction, the mouth and then the nose. Okay, suction the mouth and then the nose, and when? Right when the head comes out. Yeah, so once that head pops out, that's when you want to get that... Um, that piece done. So, so when the head pops out, you'll probably want to suction that mouth, then suction the nose. It's alphabetical, and it's because babies are obligate nose breathers, right? So they they have to breathe through their nose. They don't breathe through their mouth very well. So that's the part of their process. Ah, oh, physiological changes during pregnancy. Blood volume goes up, right? That's a big one uh, for the mother by almost fifty percent. But then we also see other things like organ crowding because as that uterus grows and it gets up, it pushes up on things like the liver, um, stomach, all of that. We start to see nausea, vomiting become a, more of an issue. We see um, respiratory problems because you can't expand the diaphragm down. So breathing becomes just a little bit quicker. Um, we see uh, pressure on the bladder, right? Um, and as we're starting to get contractions and that head is starting to move down there through the birth canal, it tends to put pressure on the rectum, which makes them feel like they need to what? Oof. Oop. All these people, only, only Turbo knows about. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that, that is a, a fairly common thing. They will actually ask moms if they want an enema prior to... Um, delivering if they get in there in time and that's just to kind of clear that out uh, this is something we, we talked about babies pooping during delivery right we, we kind of showed that you just clean it up there are going to be times where mom poops during delivery right 
please don't make a big deal of that. Just manage it. Just go ahead and grab a towel and clean that up and pull that one set of uh, blankets off of the thing. That's why I say blanket, towel, blanket, blanket. And you're set. Uh, I will do my best. Because... <laughs> <laughs> It's the reality of it, you know, it, it's not pretty, but it's, you know, I mean, out squeezing against the rectum and it just kind of acts as a pressure source and just will push it out from time to time. So something to be aware of if mom poops, it's nothing that she can control. It's just simply biology. Okay. Um, let's see here. Positioning, of the, what Whatever position should a woman deliver in? Whatever is comfortable for her, right? Now, we talked about women choosing to be naked during... Um, the whole birthing process that's sometimes easier for them if they're with people you know like they know that it's just a nurse you might not have that experience if they're getting to that point at home though they may be naked when you show up I remember showing up on a lady um, on party in labor we show up and we knock on the door it's open ah! we go we walk in and she is laying there on the ground spread eagle naked everything towards us and she's like, it's coming out. I'm like, okay, cool. Let's manage this. So go down, tell my, my partner to go get some blankets and stuff in the OB kit. I go down and I look and it looks like red, wet corduroy pushing out of this. What's our most important question we want to ask? When are you due? When are you due? Okay. She's due next week. So we should be at a pretty much full term baby at this point, right? We talk about term. How long is term? After a... 37 to 42 weeks. There you go. 37 to 42 weeks is the right answer. It, I'm sorry, I was, the 42 was throwing me off for a second. Um, 40 weeks is the average, right? 37 to 42. So if you are at 36 weeks and 6 days, that's sure. Okay. If you are at 43 weeks, you are post-term delivery, right? Average is 40 weeks. It's a... We always say nine months, but remember, months have weird things where they're not exactly 28 days, right? Months are either 30 or 31 days, so that puts you a few days outside of that, so kind of works there. Um, anyway, this lady's laying there, and she's got this stuff coming out of her vagina, and I'm like, this doesn't look right. So after that, I follow up with other important questions other than what is your due date? What kind of questions are also important? Is your first pregnancy? Ah. Is that what you tried to ask? Or is it yeah. Just a, okay. That's thing. First pregnancy is a good one. Why do we think about first pregnancy? The term, uh. how long it took. If there were complications in the first pregnancy. Okay, we want to know about that, but going back to, was it Jess or Megan who said something else too? How long delivery will take? Yeah, how long delivery is going to last, right? Because the first, the first pregnancy, the delivery lasts quite a while, generally. Not always, but generally. Um, after that, it speeds up pretty significantly. So we want to know how long. This is her third baby, she tells me. 
which to me says this baby might come rather rapidly, right? Also tells me that I've got an experienced mom who knows how this process is supposed to go, so that should calm me down a bit, right? Is she been through this? I want to know if there's any complications with this pregnancy for sure, right? Because as I'm thinking about complications, I've got something that does not look right. It looks like this head is really messed up. The perineum is bulging, right? But coming out of her vagina is this red, wet, corduroy-looking stuff. I reached down, I touched it, it didn't feel right. I'm just like, and she's like, is anything wrong? Because I must have had my something's wrong face on. <laughs> and I'm like, no, I just got a lot of things going on right now. Uh, going through the process, she's like, okay, she's breathing. I'm like, okay, great. We're going to go to the hospital instead of deliver here because I didn't like the way this was looking. So we go, we put her on the pram. I'm trying to coach her. Things you can do to help slow down contractions if you're trying to get to the hospital, if this is somebody who has potential problems with pregnancy, um, needs to have a C-section or something like that. One of the things you can do is you can coach them through breathing while they're contracting. So while they're contracting, have them breathe. That process keeps them from bearing down and holding their breath and pushing, and that can help to slow down that contraction so that they're not working with it to get this out. So I tried some of the breathing techniques. She's like, it's got to come out. It's got to come out now. All right, cool. Then let's go back to pushing. So she starts pushing, and it's more bulging, and it's more of this stuff. And I'm like, we're not going to push anymore. So this, for me, became an emergent transport because I'm like, I have no idea what this is. We got her to the hospital. We put her up in labor and delivery. The midwife came in, or the doctor or the nurse or whatever, put her glove on, stuck her hand all the way up like the shoulder in there looking around. She comes back, pulls her hand back out. She's like, she's only dilated to two. We're going to give her some mag and turn off her contractions. So this mom just really wanted this kid out and was pushing and was inverting her vagina. So what was actually being pushed out were the rugae of her vagina, those ridges that are in there. And I was absolutely disgusted. <laughs> I'm like, I know that belongs inside. <laughs> um, but know that when you're faced with something that you're not sure of, and all I could think of is it was going to be an alien or something really really messed up that I didn't want to see when that thing popped out but they shut her off and she ended up doing fine she delivered I don't later I'm sure I don't get all the follow-up on it but um, they gave her magnesium which uh, decreases uterine contractions this is also the same thing we will give for somebody who has hypertension um, hyper responsiveness of their nerves which would be a condition called seizures oh, uh, pre -eclampsia. Yeah, there. Um, remember the difference between eclampsia and preeclampsia is once once they're having a seizure it's now eclampsia so pick the position that's most comfortable for the patient um, if they're naked they're naked you can't really take a mom to the hospital squatting on the pram um, you know leaning over your bench seat, you know, so there's some degree that if you're going to take them, you've got to find a spot. Uh, if we're going to have her lay on her side, there's a preferential side. What is that side? The left side. 
left side. Nick, I saw you trying that too. And then um, once we start thinking about that left side, why do we want them on their left side? Inferior vena cava? Yeah, the inferior vena cava. It's called supine hypotensive syndrome. Because if the, baby, the weight of the uterus and the baby in that uterus compresses the inferior vena cava, it decreases blood return to the heart, which screws up stroke volume. Stroke volume screwed up, screws up cardiac output. That screws up blood pressure, right? So, bad things. Um, three stages of labor. Now, I got all kinds of answers on this on the quiz, and it's specifically asking for the start and stop points for those three stages of labor. And we know we have kind of the pushing stage and we have the, you know, the delivery stage, but I need those start and stops because you might be asked on a test, what's the start and stop point of the third stage of labor, right? Something like that. So first stage of labor is you, Kira, go. Muted. Beginning would be contractions. Mm -hmm. And when does when it end? Oh shoot! Um, off the top of my head, I would say when the, well, the baby, baby is like dilate. fully dilated. Or, or like the, the it doesn't dilate, but you're getting closer. Move up a little bit. There you go. <laughs> So it is from the the beginning of contractions to full dilation of the cervix. How big is full dilation of the cervix? Ten centimeters. Ten centimeters. Man, that's a lot. I think that's centimeters on this. God. That's oh. That's that far. That's like my entire fist, right? is a little bit less than 10 centimeters. Think of it about like the size of a bagel, right? How are you going to know that it's fully dilated? Put a bagel down there. <laughs> Stuff it in. Does this fit? Push the belly button once. That gets you a nice light brown toasting twice. <laughs> um, so yeah, uh, full dilation. You're not going to know really when that is, other than for testing purposes, you need to know when that is. <laughs> Once that has happened, then we're working on the second stage of labor, which is where Maya. Can you say that again? I only heard like half of it. Uh, push once for light brown toasting. No, not that part. Uh, <laughs> the uh, second stage of labor, start and stop points. Oh, um, from full dilation until the until the whole baby's out. Okay, until delivery. Good, easy, All right? So when babies come out, what direction are they facing usually? Um, yeah, they're little butt sniffers, right? They tend to come out head first, face down towards the butt, which is why we clean up the poop from mom, because otherwise, you know, they start off as a brown noser and you don't need that in your life, okay? The head then tends to rotate to the side, all right? That's when you want to start looking for two things. Do you have meconium staining on the face? You could have vernex. What's vernex? Cheese. Birthing cheese. I have ruined you guys. I'm sorry. Yes. <laughs> it is that cheesy like substance that covers the baby birth cheese, right? Um, 
onyx, though. But if you had meconium staining, now how are you going to know you've got meconium staining if other than just looking at the kit and seeing if it's there? Ask the mom if when her um, when her fluids her water broke if it was any it was discolored. Yeah, ask the mom when the when her water broke what it looked like and there are going to be times where that amniotic sac may not actually break and if that's the case the baby's being delivered and you can see the amniotic sac all you got to do is just kind of pinch on grab that and pull back and that will usually rip that sac once in a while you'll get one that's a little bit stubborn and full but most of the time that just will rip that you might you're then going to get that gush of waters i want to throw down another blanket or two okay is it's about 28 gallons worth of fluid. <laughs> no. But it is several cups. <laughs> so <laughs> be, be prepared for that. Um, so the baby comes out, butt sniffing. If it's meconium stain, we talked about suctioning mouth and then nose. Once that heads out, remember we're going to support with one hand, and then we're going to go ahead and check for a nuchal cord around the neck. If we can, slide it over the head. If not, plan on sliding it through the shoulders right unless it's wrapped really tight then we clamp and cut and we're doing pretty good the baby pops out where should we keep that baby the same level as the vagina at the same level as the vagina okay so we want to keep it kind of right there and we're going to get that towel and we're going to warm him up and start drying him off a little bit um, hopefully we get a nice strong cry we'll get to neonatal resuscitation a little bit but we're drying him up things are going well we're pretty happy when are we going to clamp and cord, cut that cord? When it stops pulsing? Yes, when it stops pulsing, okay? So the cord stops pulsing. We're going to put our clamps about how far out from the baby? The foot? Six inches. Okay, I got a foot, and David, you said what? Six inches. So about that far? Yeah, six. <laughs> six. What did you say, Shelby? Uh, three to four inches. Okay. Four so, to seven. I remember what your book says. Usually I use about the four to seven inch rule. Remember, we want to have a little bit extra in there because we can always clamp it shorter. Um, so you're going to put your clamp, clamp it down, slide it out a little bit, clamp another one, and then you're going to cut in between. Right? Be careful not to cut the baby. Pearl of mine is if dad or mom, other mom wants to cut the cord, what should you do? Let them. Let them. If you are at the hospital, okay. holding on to them. Yeah. Okay? I don't let people just add a baby with a scalpel. I will usually hold on to their wrist just to make sure that, you know, as they're cutting, that they don't like, right? It's always warm. Because then they'll blame you. <clears throat> uh, let's see here. Third stage of labor then is. The placenta delivery. It begins at the birth of the baby. It ends when the placenta is delivered. Once you get that placenta out, you should really stop, take a good look at it, make sure that it all looks right. If it looks like there's a chunk missing or something, what are we really worried about? If it is still inside the mom, because it can cause a lot of bleeding. Now, how much bleeding postpartum is normal? <laughs> a lot. Okay. Oh. 
about 500 milliliters. Okay, 500 milliliters is average blood loss after um, uh, after delivery. So, and it's really hard to tell. So, you're just going to simply kind of put that um, pad up against the vagina so you can kind of collect any of that fluid that's leaking out of there. That's the easy part, transport. How can we deal with maternal hemorrhage postpartum? Do the uh, uh, massage? Yeah. Who said that? Mark. Oh, Mark. Wait. Way to go. Bundle massage. Remember, you want to put where the pelvis pubis is, you want to push down with one hand there fairly fairly firmly to make sure that um, we don't you know, in the uterus and pop it out, which yes, that can happen. Everything out there has been a whole, you know, flayed open. It's been used to having a baby in there. So you're gonna put it down and it's pretty firm and you'll be surprised how empty that area feels after delivery, okay? You're gonna push down and you're gonna squeeze and rub and massage on the top side of that, that fundus of the uterus and that will get that to shrink down. Shrinking down and continued contraction of that uterus um, will decrease the hemorrhaging. The other thing we can do is encourage breastfeeding. Yes, Nick, thank you. Breastfeeding, okay? If we can get that baby to breathe, the stimulation of the nipples actually releases more oxytocin into the system. The oxytocin causes uterine contraction and helps that to shrink up. So those two things. And remember that once that baby delivers, the first thing the baby gets isn't like full on milk, it's colostrum. It's much more of a clear type of fluid. It's got way better stuff for the kid in it, including a lot of the immune factor stuff that they're gonna need to kind of get ranked up there. So encourage breastfeeding, right? So we made it through a delivery, that's not too bad. We've got all the stages, but one of the things we wanna ask about is, um, how do you know whether we're gonna stay or we're gonna show up and someone's in labor when do you know you're just going to say let's lay down on the floor or your bed and let's deliver that sucker here versus let's get in the ambulance crowning, say if the baby's crowning okay crowning is one of them what else time between contractions so time between contractions not quite, but let's talk about time between contractions because that's important how do you how do you time the frequency contractions how quickly they're coming. Start of one. To the last one to the end of the next one? Or to the start of the next one? Yeah, from start to start. So if you have a contraction that starts here, and it goes for a minute, and then you get a minute break, and then you get another one, they are two minutes apart, okay? From the start of this contraction to the start of this contraction, okay? So from from here to the thumb, and they are last in a minute. So the duration is how long it lasts. Frequency is how long from the start of one to the start of another, right? So that's good. So it's not really the duration. Think about that stage we call transitional labor. How do we know that when someone's in transitional labor? The contractions become closer to each other? No, it's not so much that. They can't walk or talk to you or answer your question. There you go, Marissa. 
is that during contractions they can't talk, answer questions, they can't move around. A lot of a lot of women when they're still having contractions and it's just getting started, they can be walking around and feeling the contractions. When you're getting to the point of transitional labor, you get that contraction and your whole world just stops. Your whole body just focuses on okay? And so that transitional phase is when they can't talk or walk around or during the contraction. Those are ones that you're worried about. If she feels the need to push, we need to maybe start thinking about that. If she feels something is coming out of her, that's another thing, right? Let's see here. Suctioning of the newborn, we kind of covered that. Um, let's go back to delivery and care of the infant just a little bit here. Where's So delivering and care of the infant, when we start thinking about this, once that infant comes out, we have got the inverted pyramid of um, neonate resuscitation. What's the top level of that, the biggest level? Stimulate and warm. So it's dry, warm, and stimulate, right? So you're going to scrub that kid down, which is stimulating him and drying him up with those towels. Hopefully we want him warm, have him put up on the defroster. If you think you're going to delivery, do that at the beginning of the call so that as it's running outside, you're getting those heated up, okay? Um, so stimulate, you just, just scrubbing down of the kid will stimulate him. You can flick at the soles just a little bit. Don't be too aggressive with that. You're not going to hang that kid and smack him. Um, you know what? That's a video that I it wasn't in my slide set for some reason. There's a kid that they delivered that they just kind of set off to the side. They came back and decided to try to resuscitate, and they smacked the crap out of this kid. But this kid was resuscitated. Um, you you might find that video. I'll put it up online for you guys. Were uh, you, you serious when you said defroster? Yeah. Not the baby on the defroster. The towels on the defroster. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, I, I, I came into that way. I was like, what? I got good news and bad news. Their back is really warm, but their front that's pushed up against the glass is so chilly. <laughs> okay, all right. All yeah, don't no, put, put towels on the defroster at the all beginning right. of the... That warms them no, up. The same thing. I was waiting for you to laugh. <laughs> never did. <laughs> okay, um... Okay, so the top level, the biggest thing, the thing that most babies, all they need is, is to be tribal. How long are you going to do that? 30 seconds. 30 seconds. 30 seconds, okay. So you're going to dry warm and stimulate for 30 seconds. You're going to reassess, right? What's the next level down? Oxygen, just blow by oxygen, right? Or oxygen on their face. So if you have somebody, they're breathing, right? Maybe they've got a really weak pulse or something like that. It doesn't matter. We're not even there yet. We're going to go ahead. We're going to try some blow by oxygen for 30 seconds, right? If that perks them up, we're going to keep that oxygen on for a little bit longer, right? If they're not breathing, we go to the next level down, which is? Bag mask, ventilations. Yes, now we're going to ventilate them, okay? Now, how fast are we going to ventilate a neonate? Almost hear you talking, Jess, what? Um, uh, one, two, three, squeeze. Yeah. So that's for CPR. 
for a baby for just ventilation it's once every well it's basically 40 to 60 minutes about once a second squeeze one thousand squeeze one thousand squeeze one thousand squeeze one thousand and we still need to get only chest rise out of this we have to be sure because those lungs are so fragile it's only going to take a tiny little squeeze to get good chest rise out of these kids right their lungs are like this big so you know just watch for that chest rise don't squeeze hard just get a little bit of chest rise and we're going to call that good right um let's see here so for 30 seconds we're ventilating okay after 30 seconds we're going to now check for a pulse where do we check for a pulse on this newborn Brachial. 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 Let me tell you, it's going to be hard to find a brachial pulse, right? What I would recommend is that you might consider using the, uh, just get your stethoscope quick, pop it on the chest and listen to that, honestly. There's a lot going on when this happens. If you can feel a pulse, great. If not, put your stethoscope on there. Just get a quick set of ears on it and listen. If your heart rate is um, less than 100, you should continue ventilating, right? If their heart rate's less than 60, what should you do? CPR. CPR, right? And if that's the case, we've moved down one more level on our pyramid to CPR. And now we're going to do, um, it was Megan was talking about, is three to one compressions. One, two, three, breathe. One, two, three, breathe. One, two, three, breathe, right? That still, if you get this done, means we're doing almost 80 beats per second times 60 is 180 minus the breathing gets us still around that 140 to 160 range. This is where we want the pulse to be, right? It takes a lot of coordination to kind of manage that, but once you get a good rhythm, it works pretty good. You're going to do that for 30 seconds. Reassess. If the heart rate's up above 100, what are you going to do? Back to valve mask. Back to ventilation. Step in, step out, like you're walking into a lake or walking out of a lake. You don't just hit the deep end and then, you know, you levitate out of the water, right? You may have to go to the deep end because you might start with a baby who's not breathing and you start ventilating and that doesn't start pick them up. And you go with the CPR thing after 30 seconds. Um, but then you need to go back to just ventilating. Then you're going to go back to probably just some oxygen. Eat it. 
Just kidding. Eat it. Mm. Uh, keep it, right, for sure. Maybe they want to eat it. Maybe they want to grind it up and put it in capsules. I don't know. Um, but you can also then take that to the hospital. Put it in one of those little gray tubs and just kind of cover it up or put it in a bag. It is part of the products of conception. If, if this is your first birth, all right, um, once you're sure mom is stable, take a second to take a look at it. It's amazing um, how this thing has been attached to the body for you know, 40 weeks. And then it just sloughs off within a matter of a few minutes and it's over with, right? It's just, it's incredible. Um, we talked about normal blood drop loss. Let's talk about Apgar. Apgar has five things. What's the first A for? Parents. Okay. This has to do with um, cyanosis, acrocyanosis, which means the arms, legs are pink, or I'm sorry, are, are bluish, but the body is pink, right? Central cyan or central cyanosis where the body's blue is bad, but acrocyanosis is pretty common, right? If the baby's fully pink, you get a two. Acrocyanosis, you get a one. Um, central cyanosis, you get a zero, right? What's the P for? Pulse. Pulse. Pulse, okay. We want that pulse to be over 100, right? Probably closer to 140 or 160. Less than 100 is bad. Uh, zero is really bad, okay? Uh, G. Grimace? Grimace. Grimace. What is Grimace other than the purple monster in McDonald's? You guys, how many people here, just out of curiosity, know who Grimace was? I remember. I remember, I remember him. And the hamburger? Oh, yeah, see? But you know what? Kids younger than you probably have no idea who those people are because they got rid of all those extras. I can't imagine. I can't even think of the last time that I saw Ronald McDonald clown on TV. Good. It's creepy. It's terrifying. It's terrible marketing. <laughs> um, yeah. Okay. So, uh, Grimace. What is Grimace, though? Sorry. Like their reflexes. Their reflexes. Okay. So, if they're fully moving around and everything, then they get a two. If they're kind of, you know, moving a little bit, then it's a one. If they're flaccid, they get a zero. Uh, what's the A? Another A for? Activity. Activity, that's that same kind of piece there. Um, what am I thinking of? What's the R? Sorry, what's R? Respiration. Respirations, okay. So we want them to be at that 40 to 60 range. Um, that's good. If it's not and it needs support, it's a one. Otherwise, it's a zero if they're not breathing at all. We take that at one minute, and we take that at five minutes, and that's the APGAR. It is not the most important thing that we do, okay? One of the things that I always tell people to do is we want to note the time of birth, right? You're busy doing stuff. But one of the things you can do is just grab your radio and just say, um, you know, dispatch ambulance 22, be advised, we're now status two patients, because everybody gets excited about that and it marks it over the radio as the time the baby was born, right? And so then you can always go back to Adcom and say, when do we make that, or whatever, whoever your dispatch is, and say, when do we make that announcement? So that's always kind of fun because everybody, everybody starts to kind of really listen when you go on a party in labor. And there you go. Okay, have a good day.
See ya. <laughs> Uh, let's take a short break, though. We'll come back at maybe like two after. Yeah. And Brian can get some Sounds good. Partum hemorrhaging. Spontaneous abortion. This is something that happens um, generally prior to uh, 20 weeks. The, uh, the body realizes most of the time that there's something wrong. Almost all of these have some type of uh, abnormality to them and probably wouldn't be sustainable. Um, really, the biggest thing with spontaneous abortion is uh, emotional care for most of it. The body's going to manage the process on its own, but there is the, the big expectation that we're going to have a baby and this is exciting and for an awful lot of people, it is a very terrible um, thing, but it is something that happens honestly fairly frequently, especially with first pregnancies. Um, ectopic pregnancy, ectopic means away from normal. So that's any pregnancy that happens outside of the uterus. Where do they mostly happen? In the fallopian yeah. tubes. Yeah, in the fallopian tubes. That's the most common place. And this is a true medical emergency because this is somebody that if that ruptures, um, it's very, very vascular. Uh, they can die from this. A lot of times, if there's an ectopic pregnancy in a fallopian tube, that means they're going to remove that side, that fallopian tube, that uh, decreases their chances of um, getting pregnant in the future. But that doesn't mean that they can't. All right? Uh, placenta previa. What is placenta previa? Who haven't we talked to? Oh, incoming phone call. Decline. I'm otherwise busy. Who haven't we really talked to? Matt, did you ever get on the... Are you unmutable, Matt? Super. How about Vanessa? Um, placenta previa, isn't that when there's an abnormal implantation of the placenta? So it's like over the cervix? Yes. Okay. So the placenta presents itself or implants itself over the, uh, um, over the opening to the uterus, the cervix. The problem with this is is that the baby can't deliver through um, through that. So you need to be aware of what that's going to look like. Um, it usually doesn't present a problem until the third trimester. Once that happens, then we start thinking about um, that third trimester painless bleeding um so it generally doesn't hurt it just um gets bloody and so most of the time due to ultrasound now we will know that somebody has placenta previa so they'll be aware of that however it can still happen um those people are going to need a c-section to deliver that child because otherwise it is going to um push push through the placenta to Edison, what's placenta abruptia? Uh, is it when the placenta rips from the uterus? Yes, it does. And that happens for a few reasons. Anybody got one for me? 
trauma? Trauma. That's probably the main reason, right? So that's when you think about the mother who, or the person who's pregnant, who is has fallen and hit their abdomen, who was in a car accident, who was you know in a fight or an assault, something like that. Now with this, there may or may not be bleeding because the placenta generally attaches at the top of the uterus. If the baby is pushing down near the bottom, there may not be a way for blood to get out of the uterus at that point. But we do need to think about things like um, the uh, uh, tightening of the uterus, mild contractions clear up to like the board-like uterus, which is usually a problem. These people need to be transported rapidly to um, to the ER so that they can be evaluated and we can see what's going on. Because if that placenta completely abrupts, that baby inside is going to die. So uh, it may result in an emergency C-section. Now, if it's a mild one, they may not do a delivery. They may assess that and keep an eye on the health of the baby where they're monitoring the uh, um, heartbeat the whole time and looking at what we're doing for hemorrhage, really monitoring um, mother's vital signs and such. But yeah, placenta abruptions where the placenta um, rips away from the uterine wall. We've already talked about prolapse cord, right? And that's one of the times we're actually going to put our hand in the vagina to push the baby's head off of the umbilical cord so that it continues to have nutrients and oxygen. Um, and then we've already talked a little bit about preeclampsia and eclampsia. Preeclampsia usually happens in that late, um, almost that third trimester kind of area. Um, we used to call it uh, toxemia of pregnancy. Currently, PIH, pregnancy-induced hypertension, is a name that's out there quite a bit, even more so maybe than eclampsia in some circles, uh, or preeclampsia. Uh, the difference, bless you, is, is that between preeclampsia and eclampsia, once they have a seizure, then it's called eclampsia. Now, a lot of times, but not always, they tend to be very swollen. Um, they have protein issues. Um, their nerves are a little on edge and a little jittery, so they're a little hyper-responsive. These are ones that, you know, if you think they're preeclamptic, you don't want to be running them with lights and sirens because it can really set them off and could push them into that seizure phase. Okay. Meconium staining, we've talked about that. Premature birth is 36 plus 6 or less, right? Because once you hit um, 37 weeks, then you're at term. Uh, premature birth, you're going to treat the same way. Viability, clear down to 22 weeks now uh, for some of these kids surviving. Uh, that's kind of like at a 50-50 range, um, and that's under best-case scenarios. And so it, when it comes to... Um, it comes to things like um, resuscitation. If it looks like a baby, if it acts like a baby, try to resuscitate it like a baby. Okay. All right. Um, multiple births. What are our thoughts on multiple births? It's terrible. <laughs> it's terrible. It's exciting. I man, I really wanted twins because I wanted more kids. And I knew that after my last one, my wife was going to tell me no more. So I was really hoping for twins. Yeah, no, twins run in my family. What's that? Twins run in my family. Yeah? Are you a twin? Are you supposed no. to be a twin? No. No, it's good. Twin in the womb? 
Yep, I absorbed it. Um, know that if you're having multiples, that multiple hands is something that you're also going to need. Because if you've got a twin that pops out and, um, you know, you've got another one after it, then you've got three patients to deal with instead of two triplets. makes it even worse. Um, I have delivered twins. I've never delivered triplets. If you don't have that second child, that second twin deliver within 10 minutes, it's time to pack up and go to the hospital. Just deliver it en route and manage it. Okay? Um, let's see here. Breach. Can you deliver a breach child? Say what? <laughs> Only one is interested. Can you deliver a breech baby? Yeah. Yes. As long as you've either got both feet or the entire buttocks, right, which is called a frank breech, um, you can deliver that child, right? You just have to kind of manage it and take your time. Remember, when the body's coming out, there's nothing you do at all until that torso delivers. Okay? Just let gravity do its job. Once that torso delivers, now we want to put a little bit of pressure on there and lift gently so that um, as you're, you're holding the baby, this is the other time you're going to stick your fingers in the vagina is you're going to slide that in to give an airway for that nose and the mouth so that you can um, get that airway opened up, right? Then you're just going to bring that face up and out this way. Remember with breach, the the harder part of this is, is that that head, which is usually the big thing, is the first thing to come through. The baby doesn't try to breathe as long as the body is still compressed by the vagina, right? Um, once that body comes out, then they start to uh, try to, uh, to breathe and cry and everything else. You going to make it there, Nick? Can we call for help? <laughs> um once that baby's out though now once the torso comes out of a baby and their breech it still has that opening up where it feels like now's the time to start breathing so again get your fingers in there create the airway um to manage that bring the head up and through and usually they pop out all right if you've got shoulder dystocia Right? And that's where that anterior shoulder usually gets caught up underneath the uh, pelvic bone. The head comes out butt sniffing. It rotates to the side, and you can't get that. You can try um, McRoberts position, which is where you're going to pull those legs way back, knees way back as far as you can get them. A little bit of easy pressure just above the um, suprapubic bone. Then you're going to pull that head down and then up, and you should be good. Okay. Um, nuchal cord we talked about, amniotic sac attack we talked about, embolism. Let's talk about embolism. Um, women are at an increased risk of embolism with pregnancy, and that continues for about two weeks after the uh, um, delivery of the child. And we worry about pulmonary embolisms. That's part of that history taking that we do. Just right? because they've been like sedentary for so long? No, it's all the fluids, the clots, the bleeding that's happening. Because remember, everything's kind of getting changed around and sealed off in there, so it's more likely to have a clot or something. Sedentary has a bit to do with it on a a different side. But once you deliver, remember, that placenta comes off, so there's clotting that happens in between all of that that area that was uh, where that attached. Right. Um, All the stretching, everything moving back changes stuff. So, yeah, it's, it's a lot of rebuilding. 
Um, treatment for shock is the same you're going to do for anything else. Uh, we worry if it's hemorrhagic shock that we're going to do bundle massage and try to encourage breastfeeding to get the uh, uterus to contract. Otherwise, that's the same way. We've talked about resuscitation on Berlin. We've talked about the inverted triangle. How are we feeling about that, that stuff? Good. Everybody else okay too? Okay. Now, um, infants and children, let's talk about this. Anatomy and physiology-wise, um, we think that the kids' heads are bigger, their skin is softer, their bones are more likely to break in a green stick by bending rather than full-on fracture just because they're still kind of, kind of cartilaginous, if you will, like a shark. Um, and then we need to think about those um, developmental characteristics. <clears throat> a, a infant from one month to one year, when does stranger danger happen? Yeah, around three or so. Didn't you say six months? Six months, yeah. And it's not that they understand, you know, that dude looks like a pedophile. What it is is that they know in about six months who should and shouldn't be holding them because they start to realize that there are different people. Before six months, babies pass around just fine. They don't care who picks them up or otherwise. After six months, um it starts to become a thing where they might cry if it's someone that they don't know. They might feel threatened or insecure at that point. It's about six months. It's obviously different for every kid, um, but it's about six months. Um, trauma patterns in infants. Their chins. Okay. Chins, maybe their heads are starting to crawl, so they crawl into things. Um, remember, it's about four to six months when they really get, excuse me, good head control and can support their head. Four months is where most of them can kind of lay on their tummy and keep their head up um, and will maintain it while sitting. Something there that's as well. And by the way, uh, something I forgot to mention about neonates that I uh, just kind of playing back in my brain. We talked about in class, but not in here, about keeping babies warm. Why do we want to keep neonates babies energy even at blood sugar or they don't have the energy to keep themselves warm like that okay so you're, you're pretty close to on that you um they can't shiver right? they don't have a yeah. mechanism to warm up other than increasing metabolism and they don't have the sugar stores to be able to increase metabolism and maintain that and so what happens is that they tend to start to burn brown fat. Um, and when that happens, it increases their their metabolism, but it also causes pH shift and it causes hypoglycemia. So keep the kids warm because otherwise they become hypoglycemic and they have a pH shift, right? So that's an important thing to do. And then get them eating as soon as you can. Get them breastfeeding and get that colostrum on board, which is super hyper rich
preventable accidents, most of those are MBAs. But, you know, illness-wise, what are the illness concerns for an infant? Would it be like respiratory stuff? So some respiratory, bronchiolitis, RSV is a big one of those, right? Uh, respiratory syncytial virus. Um, and the other one is nausea and, or vomiting and diarrhea. We don't care if they're nauseous. We never know. They can't really tell us. But vomiting and diarrhea and dehydration are big deals as well. So those are the two big issues. Now, there could be congenital heart defects and other things that kind of go along with that, but those are your two um, big ones. Um, let's move up to toddlers. How old is a toddler? One to two. One to three? Okay. So one to three is a toddler. They're learning to walk now. Injury patterns change, right? We start to see falls. The head becomes a thing. They're crawling more aggressively. They're playing more. So shins and knees and stuff like that. But not torso bruises, not buttocks bruises, nothing like that, right? We watch for bruises in different stages of healing. What do we think about as far as... Um, uh, illness for these guys. Um, like chemical ingestion. Okay, so chemical ingestion, poisoning is one of them, right? And you said what, Tristan? Isn't it croup? Like croup starts to get in there, right? So we can see some of these croupy little kids, and croup is a viral infection, has a low grade fever. It's upper airway, not lower airway. They have that, I can't, I can't make a cough, I can't fake that one. But it's that, that sealed barky kind of hoarse cough. It changes their voice as well. But it's a low grade fever. These kids do pretty good and they want to, um, they still want to play, they still want to do their stuff. Now, really bigger pushing towards the three side for croup. You can get smaller ones with as well, but then it also moves up into that preschool and early school age kids where VA um, thing as well. Um, respiratory stuff continues to be a thing. Dehydration. One of the problems is with these kids is that again they are um, they're not really able to just take care of themselves. They can't go to the sink and grab a drink of water. They just um, manage it and drink when they can when they're given it. So you have to be aware as a parent with good parenting skills to take care of them. Um, when we think about these guys, when we approach them, you want to start kind of with their feet and work up. This is the age of, of thinking about a uh, foot up approach to assessment. They're not going to have a lot of good information as far as um, you know, history taking at this age, but they definitely know what they do and don't like. They probably aren't going to like you. Take it as an insult. Just take it as the way life is. Right? Um, let's see here. The preschoolers, that's up like in that three to five range. Um, maybe three to six. I'm trying to remember where your book puts that. But this is a kid who now has got some more concrete thinking things. They're starting to play more aggressively. Bones falling off of things. Um monkey jumping off the couch kind of stuff so that's a pretty good age these kids are now starting to get to be to the point where they can help with some history and some stuff about themselves they tend to regress a little bit they still are going to require a lot of um, paternal and maternal um, support during 
uh, evaluation as much as we can. That's easy. School, age, school ages, which goes all the way up until 12. That is a group who is now starting to kind of manage their life a little bit differently. They're starting to do things that uh, they may or may not want their parents to know. Um, bullying is in there. Suicide becomes an issue for these kids. There's a lot of other stuff. As far as the medical gambit, it's everything. It's in there from appendicitis, tummy aches, first menses. I mean, there's a lot of, they're, they're seeing this. When we think about kids and we're thinking about something that's going to hurt, should you tell them well in advance that it's going to hurt? No. 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 Tell them just before you do it so that they know what's going to happen. And then try to have the parents help restrain them a bit to um, hold them. Now, by restrain, we're not talking about putting on the handcuffs, locking them to the bed, although some days you really, really want to. Um, but we're talking about parents, you know, holding them, giving the big hug. We talked about that. And watch for parents to suck at restraining their children. Okay? Sometimes they're like, I got this. They pin them to the, the bed. They're ready to go. And you go to pick them. They're like, oh, I can't do this. And the next thing you know, the kid's got a needle all the way through their bicep, and you're like, this is your fault. <laughs> like, if you can't, I always tell them, if you, if you think at any point that you won't be able to do this, let me know, because I'll have another nurse come in and we'll help, and you can still help too. But I don't want to I don't want to hurt your child any more than it has to be, right? I mean, our goal is to make this as easy as possible. Um, so be careful about trusting parents, and it's not just moms. Dads, dads can suck at this too. Okay. Especially with daughters, it seems. Okay. My son, I'll pin him to the ground. Nah, I got no problem with that. My daughter, though, I'm like, nah, I really ain't doing this, but I'm going to pin you to the ground. Um, let's see here. Adolescence. Adolescence is up till 18, and technically, according to the American Academy of Pediatrics, goes up until 25. Um, these kids are basically adults at this point, they have adult sets of vital signs. For the most part, they have adult problems, they do adult things, things that they shouldn't do, drugs, sex, drinking, <coughs> you're, no, you should, regardless. Um, I'm like, am I being judgy by saying that? Um, but yeah, no, a 14-year-old probably shouldn't be doing drugs and drinking and, and sex, just guns, just guns. Rock and roll. <laughs> What's that? And rock and roll. And rock and roll, yeah. Uh, so yeah, anyway, be aware that they, um, may have a lot more issue telling you the truth about stuff. Um, body modesty starts about age five or so, and then continues to be a thing. So consider, you know, if you're, um, the opposite gender of the, the person who is being examined, that there may be some uncomfortable level there for them. Uh, the pediatric assessment triangle looks at three things, right? What three things? Appearance. Appearance is one, somebody else, the next one? Respiratory. Work of breathing. Work of breathing. Work of breathing, it is respiratory, but it's the work of breathing. And what's the third one? Circulation. Yep, circulation. So we got A, W, C, S, right, or A. A, B, C, still, but it's a, a appearance, which, what do they look like? Um, how do they respond? Are they interactive? Are they flaccid? Are they whatever? How do they look? Okay. Work of breathing. 
How hard are they working to breathe? Is there nasal flaring, grunting, head bobbing, retractions, things like that? And then circulation, right? And that has to do with pulses, cap refill, and what that skin looks like, right? And so if you have somebody who's just got labored breathing, that's respiratory distress. If you have and their appearance concerns you because they look tired or weak, that's respiratory failure, right? If you have circulation problems, that's shock, right? That slide that I put in there, and you know what? I should probably put that up somewhere else that has the little the little triangles that are, you know, on the, tri the pediatric assessment side that are filled out. Remember that slide I showed you? I'll put that somewhere for you uh, today. Hold on the understand kind of how that process works and what you're looking at as far as what you're seeing and where your concerns are on that. Um, Length-based resuscitation, that's the Braslow tape, right? That's where you're going to take that tape and you're going to stretch it out, you put their head up at the top and you're going to see where their feet hit, right? This is for an average size kid. If you've got a really chunky kid, you may have to adjust that down to the next level um, for your drug dosages. If you've got a really super skinny kid, you may have to adjust it up. Drug dosages aren't your problem though, right? But the weight-based resuscitation tells you everything that you need to know and it's super important because as you think about this, when you roll into the hospital, if you're making that phone call and I can say he's a Braslow Red, then they're already got that red car open and they're ready to roll because all the doses are pre calculated, right? All the size of ET tube that they're going to use, the IV catheters, the amounts of fluid that they're going to bolus, it's all there and ready to go. Uh, blood pressure readings. So children used to say under five, we don't care at all. Now, really, it's getting down to the threes. Uh, they really want a blood pressure reading on pretty much everybody. If you can get it, but remember that when you're taking a blood pressure on a four-month-old, that that blood pressure cuff is about this big, right? Did anybody get to see baby blood pressure cuffs in the field when they were on clinicals? Yeah. You did? Yeah, I did. All right, cool. They're tiny, right? They're really small. And they did it by all computer, by just letting the machine do it, right? Did you see anybody take a stethoscope? No. 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 They also put the blood pressure cuff on her leg. On the lower part of her leg? Um, no, on her upper leg. Uh, oh, how, how old was she, though? Six months. Yeah, that's fine for a six-month-old. Um, <laughs> and, yeah, they wrap it around there, and what they're feeling is that femoral artery, right? So, um, and part of that is could be based off of cuff size and otherwise. But, yeah, it's really tough to take a auscultated blood pressure on a tiny. They just... It's just almost ever right. Your your stethoscope size is about this big around, right? Their arm is about the size here. So when you think about that, most of your stethoscope is off on either side. Usually on the other side is a bell, although some of them will have the uh, the diaphragm. But like, like neonate stethoscopes are about the size of a dime or maybe a nickel, and that's actually the size of the stethoscope head. So yeah, they're pretty cool and pretty specialized stuff. Um, let's see here. 
airway positioning for infants and children. Uh, remember that uh, the occiput, the occipital area up here, tends to force their head forward. So a little bit of patting up underneath the shoulders um, is, is a good thing. So get those shoulders padded. Um, Yeah, we talked about respiratory distress, respiratory failure, um, as far as the uh, uh, pediatric assessment triangle. Respiratory arrest is obviously a problem, and you're going to follow stuff. If they are an infant or a child, how fast are we going to ventilate? Once every second. Neonate once every second. Three to five. Once every three to five seconds, okay? So that's either 20 or between 12 and 20 breaths per minute for um, a child or an infant. You can never go wrong with five unless they're not, you know, maintaining color and pulse oxygen. You speed it up. Um, let's see here. OPAs and NPAs, same kind of thing here. Blue by technique is fine. CPR, you better know how to. I'm not. I not, I refuse to cover CPR. You have a card. Should have learned it in class. Uh, um, but know how to do CPR and foreign body airway obstruction on all ages for sure. And then some other things that we think about here. Um, strider. Strider is a um, upper airway sound, that high-pitched piece. Crowing is a little bit lower than that. But it's usually associated with a foreign body airway obstruction. right? And what I will say about that is if the kid is coughing forcefully, and you don't have any signs of problems as far as, you know, like their appearance, their mental status, anything like that, we are then going to be okay with letting them cough. That's still respiratory distress. If they are continuing to cough forcefully or weakly and you have an appearance problem, that's respiratory failure, and you need to act to remove that item, which means you're going to go to those abdominal thrusts, or otherwise, if they're unconscious, you would just start CPR, okay? Croup, we talked about being a viral infection. It is um, upper airway. It's that horse cough. It's a low-grade fever. They still want to play versus epiglottitis. It is um, a high fever. They tend to sit forward and jut that chin forward. They tend to drool, and it's a swelling of the epiglottis. We want to be careful with these kids. Um, the airway can com swell completely shut. If it does swell that much, you still want to try to BVM to try to force some air in. You want to get ALS involved right away with someone you suspect of epiglottitis, which also tends to come with a, a higher fever. Um, these kids don't want to play. They don't want to move around. They know that they're in trouble. It's amazing that the human body knows that it's got issues. Um, but that process of getting me involved means that I can give racemic epinephrine, which is a nebulized epinephrine, which gets directly onto the epiglottis and will shrink it down or be prepared to do a needle crike on a kid. Um, those are things that you can do. Seizures in kids. What kids tend to seize? Why do kids tend to seize? Kids with fevers. Fever. Fevers, yeah. So we think about fevers, and it's not just that they have a fever, it's that the fever does what? A quick rise in temperature. Yeah, it tends to go up quickly. So as that fever rises quickly, that's when we tend to see these seizures. 
So we always want to ask history. They've had a fever for, you know, whatever. What have you been giving them? Tylenol. When did you last give it? You know, if it's at the end of the Tylenol, well, the Tylenol wore off, and now suddenly that fever's cranking up again. That seizure is not necessarily uncommon. A lot of what you need to do is honestly care for the parents because the parents tend to be freaking out more than the kid at that point because after the seizure, what 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 is the kid in? Postictal. Postictal. So do they care or know anything? No. No. <laughs> They're just they're like, whatever. They just want to sleep. Let them sleep. Keep an eye on their vital signs. Let them sleep on the way to the hospital. Take them in and get them seen, right? Because this kind of fits in that brewy range, right? Beef resolved, unexplained event. Um, we worry about that. And anytime somebody has a brewy, they change color, they change mental status, things like that. We want to get them into the hospital because it can be a sign that there could be something worse happening. Poisonings, we're going to call poison control. What's the number? 222-1222. Might want to put the 1-800 on the front of it, but yes, 222-1222 is poison control. Um, be prepared to give them all the information, listen to what they have to say, tell them which hospital you're going to. They'll actually call ahead and give information if it's uh, if it's vital to the uh, health of the patient. What kind of things would you see, Greg, if they did ingest some type of poison, but for some reason, like, they put it back under the cabinet and you don't know what they took, what would you start seeing? Um, I mean, I'm assuming vomiting for one, but... Well, vomit, yeah, vomiting for all poisonings is a pretty common thing, and there's no way to tell, unfortunately, because if they took something and you don't know what it is, you don't know what it is. Different poisons present in different ways. Now, if they say they got under the sink and there were a lot of things out, I would probably rather than just bring everything with me. I mean, you might just throw it in like King Super's bags or something and, and bring it all with you or get out your phone and go picture, picture, front and back, picture, picture, front and back, picture, picture, front and back of everything that's under there. And then you can take that stuff to the hospital as well. So, but I would have an idea of what is underneath that sink wherever they got to, but you would never be able to guess. My grandson got into the aquaphor, um, which is kind of like, fancy Vaseline, right? The other day, my daughter has no idea how much he ate. Great. So like, what should I do? I said, do you need to call poison control? What's the number? Billy, you used to be a 911 dispatcher. Yeah, my... Under 222-1222. We were sitting on the couch and my nephew came out when he was about five years old and his breath smelled like straight perfume. We were like, what the hell? And so we, my sister got those like little sample vials. Oh yeah, the little glass ones. And he, they were sitting on her nightstand, and he just fucking drank them, and came out, and his breath smelled just like perfume. We were like, where did you get that? He was fine. Uh, yeah. The downside is those are very high in alcohol. Yeah. So <laughs> might have got a little toasty. My my aunt. Um, is the head of nuclear medicine in Bern, Switzerland. Um, and she used to bring us Swiss chocolates. And she brought my parents all these chocolates that were little bottles that had some. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I had no idea when I the started getting into bottle. those. But, man, I, I ate a bunch of those. I was trashed, <laughs> apparently, <laughs> at seven. So uh, my drinking career started early, so... <laughs> 
Um, let's see here. Meningitis. Meningitis affects kids as well. We look for things like the modeling of the skin. Remember, nuchal rigidity, right? The neck, the stiff neck. They can't bring their head down um, to their chest. So you, one of the things you can do is, uh, like, lay them down, have them pull their mm. knees all the way up, see mm. if they can bend their head up to their, um, their yes. chin up to their chest. Uh, it usually causes a lot of pain in that back and, and neck, and they do it. So meningitis fits in there. Meningitis comes in both viral and bacterial. Viral meningitis um, is less of an issue. It's not as bad. Bacterial meningitis is really bad, but luckily we can give antibiotics. So there you go. Shock in kids. Remember that kids compensate, 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 die. And you will see very little minor changes for a while. And then all of a sudden you see major changes. Once you're seeing the major changes, now it's time to start worrying about uh, how far behind you are. That's going to be one of those things. Um, let's see here. SIDS, what is the uh, kind of peak range for SIDS? So that's kind of the, the range for SIDS. The peak is really about two to four months. And once you move past that, you're usually doing a whole lot better. What should we do for SID stuff? You show up and somebody um, is uh, got a baby and uh, last seen at like 2 o'clock in the morning as they got up in the middle of the night to feed the baby. Baby ate. They laid him back down to bed. Um, you show up. Baby is cold, has rigor mortis. What should you do? Check for a pulse. No pulse. Tell the parents that there's nothing you can do. Yeah, that don't resuscitate side of things. It's a really bad and crappy place to get stuck, for sure. So, um, yeah, think about that. And... Um, be prepared to manage that. If you show up and there's any chance at all, it's okay. Take that kid to the hospital. We'll manage it at the hospital. We'll make those decisions. We'll make those uh, proclamations to the parents. Um, it will help you out. And besides, if there's any chance, you should just give that kid a chance. Bless you. Rigor mortis, though, um, those are problems. Yeah, I guess um, there would be rigor mortis if you still had a pulse. Probably, yeah, probably not. Maybe it's just a seizure. If they're rigor mortis but twitching, so maybe those you should try for. Um, it is potentially a crime scene. Cops may or may not want the parents to hold the child. Um, as long as the cops are okay with it, I am totally fine that the parent hold on to their child and um, you know, cradle it, and, you know, get, to, get to talk to them and, and all those bits and pieces. It's, it's kind of sucks. I can't position it. <laughs> okay. Sorry, Ty just happened. Um, how did Padme die? How did Padme die? Well, I know she was giving birth, but <laughs> oh, I thought this was going to set up for a joke. <laughs> no, I'm asking you. What center is going um, I would assume it was probably some type of bleeding issue. 
which you would think that if we can fly across the effing galaxy that we could probably deal with maternal hemorrhage at that point. But maybe maybe the force left her body. Word. Went into the kid. She lost all her mid chlorines. <laughs> seriously, Lucas, get your shit. Oh, sorry. Get your get your stuff together. And I'm so glad that they didn't let Jar Jar Binks be you know, the Sith Master. Everyone hates on Jar Jar. Um, yes. With good reason. However, if you look, there's a lot to be said about him being the Sith Master. If you haven't looked at that, look up on... You think I'm kidding, Tristan? <laughs> Look online, there's a whole thing about it. I've read the Reddit threads. Oh, yeah. Alright. Let's see. That gets us through pretty much all of this stuff. Geriatrics. Um, you know, when we think about geriatrics, think about how um, you talk with people that you may need to allow them a little more time to answer questions. Um, think about how many layers of clothes they're going to have. Think about them being on that edge of dehydration. Think about the the liver decreases in its function. And so you may need to decrease doses of medications, right? Think about um, like the kidneys, they shrink up and they decrease a little bit. So, uh, you know, I mean, we're starting to wear out. Other than that, most of the other things are all medical stuff that you have already done. And would they be... Would they be potentially jaundiced at all once their liver starts stops functioning as well? No, it's not really that. You don't you don't really see that. It's not a liver failure problem. It's just that it decreases its function a little bit. Yeah, it's also not putting out if any of that was associated with it by chance. Yeah, no. That's a good thought. Any other questions you guys have? Yeah, I have one. I can't remember what you said um, as far as like the verbiage of like the relationship between the mother and the child of the placenta. You said it's the uh, the barrier. What did you say about it? Okay, so I think it was because Shelby used the term the lifeline. And, you know, now that I'm thinking back through that, Shelby, I think that's probably still a very good um, analogy. It's probably the one I use, honestly. Um, but it, it is. It is the connecting point, maybe is okay. a better term, between the mother and the baby it's the bridge right um it's where anything from the mother filters in through the placenta it actually produces estrogen and progesterone so it is a um endocrine gland honestly in in that process um and so it helps with all those maternal changes all the things that are happening within the mother's body so yeah it's a pretty amazing organ honestly we Last time we're meeting. What's that? Is this the last time we're meeting? On the computer? Yeah. I think so. Because we've got uh, Monday's the test. And then um, the skills days. Wednesday and Thursday are skills days. And then the next day is um, the final on the next Monday. Hoorah. Almost done. So I would start mapping out how you want to study for um, your final. 
I mean, obviously, you're going to probably study this weekend for exam six. It's due. Um, but then start thinking about your final. You'll probably have, I still don't know about the timing, probably 100 minutes, maybe 110 minutes to take your final. Um, Do you want a Monday or the question. final final? Final, final. The final, final. Final, final. The cumulative final. Um, yeah. Remember when you come to school, you will be coming in um, and being assigned to rooms. That's are we still coming to the main entrance, or how are they going to do that? You know, I still don't know. I've got that's part of my conversation to have today. Hopefully, um, and see going uh, through the west hall entrance or something. You know, yeah, I don't know exactly where they're going to want you to come through. Uh, I would expect probably still like the main entrance is probably going to be the place. Hold on, I'm just pulling up the uh, login here. I saw uh, at one point Kira signed up during the thing. So I've got 27 students signed up. So we'll be... Um, yep. I'll be putting out Wednesday after or Friday afternoon an email about where it is that you're going, what your um, assignment's going to be, for which room you're going to go to first. And like I said, please start thinking about the medicine stuff. Think about the, the trauma patient. Make sure that you look over your AED and um, BVM stations again. And then. And be prepared to think about splinting. So look through those splinting videos as well so that um, you will know the basics of splinting so we don't have to spend a whole lot of time flat out teaching you splinting and we can get you into doing splinting, okay? If anybody, I will also be sending out criteria for um, self-screening. And if you meet any of that criteria for self-screening, send me an email and let me know you won't be coming. Right? Um, about a week. Self-quarantine self for a week. And then once that's done, I don't care what you do until IV class. But IV class, remember, skills will be coming forward. I think what we managed, by the way, because there were some question marks about um, IV class and the cap size, is that we are going to have skills days in June 30th, July 1st, and July second and how that's going to look will just be a thing that we're going to have to manage my goal is to have it be only one and a half days that you have to deal with being out of work for um this process but all that information will be forthcoming as soon as possible like i said i was on the phone with my team yesterday and that information is going up to joe garcia the chancellor of cccs i just saw an email probably through him a while ago so um Susan, get final confirmation for how this is going to look. All right. Any other questions? Yeah, the geriatric study under there it says leading cause of death. Cardiovascular disease. It's all heart attacks. Number one, still. So. Um, Greg, for the National Registry, 
Um, once we take like the final with this class and we get that, that letter to test, is there like a time frame with that? Like you have to wait a certain amount of days or you have to do it within a certain amount of months? So, okay. Um, did I put up online the uh, um, easy guide to national registry. You may take a look at that. I saw it. Saw it, but thought, why would he? Why would he put this up? Who cares? It's not a homework assignment. Thanks, Tristan. Um, <laughs> in the grand scheme of things, um, it works like this: your national registry. Once you have your authorization to test, which doesn't come as a letter or an email, it just shows up on your account. Um, once you have your authorization to test, you have ninety days to um, to take the test. Otherwise, um, it has to be issued again. So, here, here's the problem with this, is that your best chance of um, surviving the National Registry is to take it right away. Um, the longer you wait, the more likely it is you will not pass National Registry on your first attempt. If you are not successful on your first attempt, I think there is a two-week waiting period before you can attempt again. Um, you will have to pay for the test again. Uh, if you fail that, there's another two-week waiting period and you have to pay for the test again. If you fail a test for the third time, then um, you will need to take a refresher class before you're allowed to test again. You get three more shots at it. You fail it after those three, then you have to take the entire program again. If you fail the test the first time, I will come to your house. No, I'm kidding. Um, if for some reason you have a bad day, if you have a bad test, I will work to get together, get you together with one of our instructors to help tutor you to figure out um, what happened and how to be more online with this. And again, I think that you know, find find things that will help you study. National Registry is is the best thing. Make sure that you really know the information. If you know the information deeply, you should be fine. Are National, there, uh, they ask questions weirdly, for sure. Are there testing centers at um, Front Range, or where where are we taking them? Like at a Pearson Center or something? It is at a Pearson Center. There's one on 92nd and Harlan. Our college campus is a Pearson testing center now, and you can take that test on our campus now, as long as the testing center is open. That's going to be the trick of it. I don't know what that's going to look like. I've got a meeting with the college president on Friday, so I'm hoping to uh, ask that question um, because this is a Sentinel test, and it's important that you have an opportunity to test. Uh, Boulder County campus also has uh, the ability to test EMTs. So that's in Longmont. However, their campus and our campus are going to be exactly the same as what services are available. So we'll see what that looks like. Okay. Fingerprints. If you haven't fingerprinted, get on it. Somebody sent me an email about the unique code for fingerprinting. And I think they have that unique code there. Um, like to sign up for it? Yeah, there's a... Uh, yeah, it's in the link that you sent. 
I thought it was in the link, but somebody was telling me it wasn't. So you guys are saying it is in there? You are looking at it. It is. It is? Okay. For sure. So, yeah, I will direct them back towards that and see if I can swing it back around for them. I just, I've got to get caught up on a couple emails. So, like, I've probably gotten 25 emails in the last two hours. So, Is there anything we should be waiting for after we get fingerprinted, like a card or a letter in nope. the mail or anything? You get an email. Once you're email. fingerprinted, that automatically goes to the state. What was that, Tristan? You get an email that's like, hey, you showed up and you did it. Oh, yeah. yeah. Just to yeah. say that, like, that the process was successful. Okay, cool. Greg, if we're going to be working in a different state, we need that fingerprint card, right, to bring with us? Um, it depends on the state. And here's what I would recommend to anybody who's looking at getting certified in another state. One, take your national registry. Two, finish your Colorado one because... Um, Colorado sometimes transfers better than National Registry. I had one of my students, um, Nolly, she went up to Washington, and I told her this, and she didn't listen to me. And she went up there with her National Registry. They're like, yeah, we don't take National Registry. They're like, where did you used to be? She's like, well, Colorado. They're like, oh, we'll take your Colorado cert. She's like, well, I didn't get certified in Colorado. They're like, oh, so sad. Um, and they wanted her to do a whole EMT program again. So, yeah, right? So she came back and used a friend's address and got certified in Colorado and then went back to Washington and said, well, I am certified in Colorado. Sorry. So how do you go about completing the Colorado certification? Like after we take the National Registry, what do we have to do for that? So you go to coems.info. That's on an announcement on uh, EMS 124 right now. Um, and you want to apply, there's an oath account that you need to set up and you do an application. It costs, oh wait, it's now cost money, $2.55, $2.55. So the certification for Colorado is just that oath thing? Right. And what you'll do is you'll fill that out. You'll put your national registry number in it. You'll upload a copy, I think, of your driver's license and a copy of um, your CPR card. And then they will automatically issue your Colorado certification. So the oath thing, okay. it says right now to do it as soon as possible, but you have to put in your national registry number so you can complete the national registry. Right. Oh. So you can get your account set up and ready to go so that it's ready to roll. And then as soon as you do your national registry, you put those two things in there. And sometimes it's taking as little as, you know, a couple of days. Sometimes it's taking weeks. So that's why I say you want to have your fingerprints done so you're ready to go. Because you're right now down to the end of this. And, um, you know, Tristan, you were you did your fingerprints. Was there any issue getting in for that? No, it was wide open. It took five minutes. It's the easiest thing. Super. So um, if you haven't done them, I would get that done. And then do the oath thing. Get your, your Colorado. Where is it you're looking to go, Robin? Wyoming. Where? Wyoming. And they take the National Registry, but I'll still get Colorado certified, too. I would, because it's good for three years. You never know what you might end up doing. Oh, I don't uh, plan on being in Wyoming long term. That doesn't sound. Well, most yeah. people don't, but then they get stuck because it's Wyoming. <laughs> yeah, I don't know about all that. <laughs> 
Uh, so yeah, I would I would get in touch with Wyoming and find out what their requirements are for certification. If it's just national registry, then international registry can go from there. I think it's like Wyoming EMTB EMTA paramedic or national registry is what they take. So gotcha. Well, I'm sure it's going to be a Wyoming certification, but if they, if all you need is national registry with and not take a test, some states actually have a test. Colorado used to have a test. And did I ever tell you this story about how we got out of testing in Colorado? So they were going through and, and every three years you had to go in as a paramedic or an EMT and you had to test to remain, right? So you actually had to do a written test. And then they went through and they zipped through somebody's Scantron. They're like, what? This guy didn't pass? I don't believe it. There's no way he didn't pass. So they rescanned it again. They got a different number. And what they found out was their Scantron was bad, their reader. And so they started freaking out about it a little bit and looking into it. And they found a couple of people who shouldn't have been paramedics who were paramedics because they missed by a couple of points on the written exam. And as they were looking into this, people started sending them faxed copies of the state exam. They were supposed to be, you know, like super secret, super secure things. Every I still have my copy, my study guide of the state exam that somebody gave me, and I keep it because I tell this story, and you know, it's like people's handwritten out questions. It's like all of the questions on this test. It doesn't have the ABC answers, but it has like all of the questions of the tests written out. And so everybody had this in the states like, we just can't do this. It costs money. We don't make any money because the state of Colorado until last year could not charge you to become an EMT, right? It wasn't in the uh, um, uh, regulations for Colorado. And so um, what they said was, we're not going to do this anymore. Now you have to have national registry. Once you have national registry, you get your Colorado state cert. Once you have Colorado state cert, you can lose national registry. Because national registry is every two years, state of Colorado is every three years. Um, but once you're state certified, then as long as you keep up on your skills and your CE, then you can remain an EMT without another testing process. And so, yeah, the state got out of the testing business and basically pushed it off to, to national registry, which is why you have to have national registry. Now, I would recommend keeping national registry just because... Um, it's a harder thing to get back, and if there's ever an issue, um, you would have to manage that. But and apparently, Michaels is having a Mother's Day sale. Nice. Anything else you got for me today? Um, I actually have a story about something that happened yesterday. What happened? Um, so I was driving back home from a, like, a warehouse store, and, um, there was a man laying, like, almost in the intersection of a busy street. Um, he was on the, he was kind of on the sidewalk where you would wait to, to cross the intersection. And so I pulled over and, uh, went up to him. He was laying down, um, supine and... Um, he had puke all over him and all over the sidewalk and there was blood, just a little bit of blood, but, and, uh, he was kind of, he was like unconscious. So I went up to him and I was like, Hey, like yelled at him. I was like, Hey, and then he didn't wake up. And I like clapped. I was like, Hey, like, are you okay? And he woke up and 
he's like, oh, like, what are you, like, what are you doing? Like, what are you doing? And, um, I said, um, like, hey, what are you doing here? And he's like, I'm just resting. I need a rest. Um, and I was like, okay, you're almost in the streets. You know where you are? And he's like, yeah, I'm going to the bus And I was like, um, sir, you're not at the bus stop. You're laying in the street right now. And he said, I don't want your help. Um, like, I'm fine. And someone had already called 911. Um, and so he didn't really know where he was, but he was he was aware. He knew his name um, and everything. But so I kind of did ABCs and but it was kind of crazy. Like he was just like puking and like laying down almost in the in a busy street. How old but, was Ish? Um, he was probably like thirty. Okay, what are your differences yeah. on him? Um, drunk, maybe an overdose, maybe, um, diabetic. Okay. Yeah. One more I would throw in, seizure, right? Seizure, yeah. So how do you start ruling those out? Um. What do we look for in seizures, y'all? Two big things for seizures. Shelby, you can play too. I know I said y'all. What do you mean? What do we, what do we, what do we look for? I mean, yeah, what, what, are, what are two things that we look for to help us rule in a seizure? Would it be if they have any, like, diabetic jewelry that says that they have diabetes? Well, that would be for diabetics, sure. I'm thinking seizures, though, but I, I agree you should look for that because they could have a uh, um, wristband or something that says seizure disorder, right? When people seize, what tends to happen? Maybe they pee themselves. There you go, David. They pee themselves. Their tongue bite. Their mouth's bloody. Okay, so there's two things. We have um, urinary incontinence and oral trauma. Two big things we look for in anybody who's had a seizure. So did he have either of those that you could see, Shelby? No, and you know, I think the blood, so where he was laying, I think it wasn't very much blood at all, but I could see it spotting on the, uh, on the sidewalk. Um, was either from behind his head or on his, on his shoulder because he had some blood on his shirt. Um, but he really did not want me to, you know, come close to him at all. And sure. I didn't have any PPE on, so I wasn't about to touch this, like, this man with vomit all over himself and blood. Oh, so, heck yeah. Yeah. So, and that's why I start thinking about things like seizure, because if he fell to the ground and, um, you know, had a seizure, then hitting his head is something that's fairly common to see. Could also be hypoglycemia, right? He was walking along, thought he was doing okay, and his blood sugars dropped, and he collapsed to the ground where he hit his head, and that could cause those same things, okay? Vomiting is a cause of hypoglycemia, right? So see, it's about thinking about those differentials. Now, drunk and overdose certainly could be a thing. Where were you at? Um, so I don't know if anybody's really familiar with Boulder, but I was on Arapahoe and um, Wholesome by... Like the kind of across the street from Safeway. Gotcha. 
Um, here's here's the big moral of this story, Shelby, is that when he was unconscious, you had an opportunity to steal his wallet, and you didn't take it. Because once he was awake, he was freaking out. You had a small window of opportunity to... No, I'm kidding. <laughs> <laughs> signed up for a skills day and if for some reason you're intending on not doing the skills day because you're remoting in from Canada or Cuba or Quebec which is in Canada I just was for another alliteration um, make sure you send me an email so that I know otherwise I'm just going to assign you to a place and consider that you didn't want to or if you don't show up then it's a, a failure of EMS 124 so other than that you guys Study hard. Test will be ready on Monday. And go from there. All right? Thanks, Greg. Okay. All right, guys. Thanks, Greg. Thanks. Bye, guys. Thanks, Greg. Bye.